Acts chapter 16, 13 through 40. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and, draw, and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they drew them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, <clears throat> Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thanks, Steph and band. Uh, welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we want to thank you uh, for skipping watching the U.S. Women's World Cup Championship, like right now. So uh, if you need to quick glance at your phone to check the score, that's okay. But streaming the game with the sound on, not okay. So if we can keep it to just quick glances, we would all appreciate that. But uh, go 
Go uh, U.S. team. All right, this morning we are uh, still in the book of Acts. If you're brand new with us, the book of Acts is uh, the book in the Bible that comes chronologically after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Jesus sends his spirit into uh, his people, into the church, and now the church, the people of God, the, the bride of Christ, Christians, uh, the church is now born. Uh, the universal church, as well as a bunch of local churches, are being planted all over the ancient world. And so this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at what's happened in a, a specific city called Philippi that we uh, were introduced to last week. And we're going to, we, we uh, are, Steph read, and we're going to cover a few verses that we actually hit on last week as well, because it's, it all fits together really well as, as one nice story of these three salvation events. And what we saw, what, what Steph just read, and as we're going to unpack over the next few minutes, is uh, how the gospel is for everyone. The gospel has now moved into a new continent. It's now in uh, Europe. It's now going to a new city, a Roman city, where there's hardly any uh, Jewish people there at all, let alone people that know about Jesus. And we're going to see what happens there. Uh, Tim Keller actually has an incredible sermon on this passage. Uh, so anything that's profound or great that you hear me say today is either from him or from the Holy Spirit. So... Um, let me just give credit where credit is due. So, uh, but let's get started. So um, what we saw here in our passage today that Steph just read is we see three different stories of salvation here in this new city. The Gospels come to this new city of Philippi, and we see three different conversions. So essentially, it's, it's kind of like a case study about salvation in this Roman city called Philippi. And as we know, there's many different people that were converted, but Luke chooses to, to focus on these three unique people because he's trying to tell us something. We're going to see what that is in just a second. We saw three different ways that people are saved, yet with the exact same gospel. So it's three different ways that people came to Christ, three different ways that people were converted, yet it was the same gospel the whole time. And we'll see why uh, the, the author, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, why he chose these three in just a bit specifically. But first, let's just kind of go through these three salvation experiences that we see. Lydia, a slave girl, and then the Philippian jailer. So first, this lady, Lydia, we, we heard her story last week. We spent a lot of time on it. So I'll just kind of quickly summarize here. So Lydia was a very wealthy person. She, uh, she worked in, in selling uh, purple goods. She was a business owner. She had many servants for her. She, set, she had a household, yet we don't hear a family described, so she was probably very wealthy, a businesswoman, and had many servants. Uh, she was also very spiritual, and she was maybe what we'd call like a seeker, yet she didn't yet know Jesus. And so when Paul shows up, he goes to, there was no synagogue because there was not enough Jewish people in this city, and so Paul goes to the river thinking there'd be a place of prayer and people who kind of knew about the God of the Old Testament would be praying there. He finds this lady, Lydia, and, and, and some other women, and he shares the gospel with them, tells them how the, the person that they've been praying to and worshiping, uh, the, the, the God of the Old Testament has now sent his son into the world, God become human, God made flesh, and that he is what all this Old Testament has been talking about. And so when Lydia sees, when Lydia hears this message, when she sees that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament was pointing to and talking about, she believes, and she is converted. And then the next character we see is a slave girl, and we see that she is tormented by an evil spirit. She is demonically possessed. 
But not only that, but she was also physically oppressed as well. She was a slave. And her owners were greedy, and rather than caring for her well-being, they used her in order to make lots and lots of money. Because she was demon-possessed, she could do supernatural things and, and read the future and at least pretend to read the future or something. And so she made her owners lots and lots of money because of this. Because she's oppressed by demons, she knows who Paul and Silas and the other people in their team are. Just like we've, if, if you know in, in Jesus' own ministry, often uh, the, the, the demons would say, we know who this guy is, we know who Jesus is, and they would make the demon-possessed people cry out and say, he is the son of the Most High God, or, or things like that. Similarly, this is happening here with uh, this slave girl. And she's following Paul and Silas and calling this out. She's saying things, she's, she's saying this, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She does this for days and days, and Paul finally casts this demon out in the name of Jesus, healing this girl, both physically as well as from her spiritual oppression. And yet, despite this new freedom that she now has, her owners are not happy. They've lost an ability to make an incredible amount of money. And so they bring lies to the local police and say, hey, these guys have come, they're Jews, they're, they, they, they spread lies, and they eventually get Paul and Silas brutally beat and thrown into prison and then in the stocks. But sitting in the dark, deepest depths of the dungeon, or the DDDD as they called it, Paul and Silas's spirits are down, right? They're, they're, they're probably being tortured, which these stocks are probably a, a torture device. They are unjustly imprisoned, right? They're innocent. Yet, what do they do, right? Do they cry out for, their, uh, for, for justice to be done for them? Do they shake their fist at God and say, hey, you're the one that brought us to Philippi. You're the one that told us to come here and spread the gospel. Why are we unjustly in prison? We actually don't see that happen, but we see Paul and Silas, they're praying. They're singing. They're, they're singing worship songs in the dark of the dungeon as they are just waiting, knowing that God put them there, that God has a plan, and being joyful to suffer for the sake of Christ. So this leads to our third case study, the third person, the third new character that we meet today that has a salvation experience, the Philippian jailer. So this jailer is almost for sure a former Roman soldier. Uh, he was a blue-collar Roman citizen who highly values honor. Probably was a soldier for decades and now is kind of retiring and stays in one location so he can be with his family and now has this, it's actually a pretty decent job being uh, running a jail here um, in the city. And he's the one that oversees this brutal beating of Paul and Silas, maybe even participating in it this uh, himself. And as he throws these two traveling preachers who have riled up the city, as he throws them into the stocks in the deep parts of the dungeon, he sees that despite the injustice, despite the brutality that these two traveling preachers have faced and the suffering that they're going through, the jailer hears these guys singing. The jailer hears these guys talking about their God and praying to him. Not only are they joyful amidst horrible pain and suffering and injustice, they're also doing the same thing that just got them thrown into prison. They're doing the same thing that just got them horribly beaten. And the prisoners and the jailer, they hear about this man 
named Jesus, who is also God, and who gives hope and meaning to people who are losing everything, people who are suffering in prison unjustly. And then at midnight, a supernatural earthquake comes and just so happens to break all the chains and shackles and stocks that are holding the prisoners. So when the jailer hears this, he draws his sword, knowing that if, if a prisoner escapes on his watch, he'll be executed. So the jailer draws his own sword. He's about to commit suicide, knowing that uh, to be um, publicly executed would be humiliating for his family as well as for him. Remember, they're in a, a culture that really highly values honor, and he's a Roman soldier who would highly value honor. So he's just about to kill himself. But at that moment, Paul calls out from the darkness. He says, stop, don't do this. We're all still here. We haven't left. We haven't abandoned you. Yes, these doors are open and our chains have fallen off, but we are still here. All the prisoners are still here. No one has escaped. You're not going to die. And it is at this moment, after hearing these men speak about their God, after seeing them unscathed by torture, imprisonment, and unjust suffering, after seeing a supernatural event, an earthquake, break open doors and chains and shackles and stocks, and then after seeing all these prisoners, especially Paul and Silas, choose not to run away and escape, it's after all that that they speak to him. It is at this very moment that the soldier falls to his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? After hearing about this Jesus, this God that, that changes people's lives like this, he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And he's not just talking about being saved from being executed because the prisoners didn't escape. The prisoners didn't run away. He doesn't need salvation from his boss executing him. He wants to know what he must do to be saved. And in one of the clearest answers in all of the New Testament, Paul speaks to this jailer. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He tells them, no longer put your hope in Lord Caesar. No longer your meaning in being an honorable citizen of the Roman Empire and being a soldier for it. But forfeit all of that at the feet of Lord Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus as both your Lord in place of Caesar as well as your Savior, and you will receive this salvation that we have been singing about that brings us meaning and joy despite this unjust suffering that we're going through. This salvation that brings such peace that tortured, bloodied, suffering prisoners can sing songs while covered in their dry blood and beaten bodies. This Lord Jesus, through whom all this world was created, and who has power over not just demons, like you heard about Philippian Jailer with this, this little girl, but this Jesus has power even over nature and land and reality itself. And the jailer believes, and he runs home and he tells his family everything that he has seen and heard, and they can't help but believe also. And they immediately are baptized, pledging their allegiance to a new Lord, no longer an allegiance to Caesar, but a new Lord, and a new citizenship, the Lord Jesus, and as citizens of his kingdom. And like all the other conversions we've seen so far in the book of Acts, immediately his life is changed. The man who just beat Paul and Silas to a bloody pulp is now washing their wounds, is now on his knees caring for them gently, who is now humbling himself before them. 
He's inviting them into his own home. He's giving them food. And just like in Lydia's story as well, salvation immediately, immediately leads to generosity and hospitality towards others. So those are our three case studies. Those are the three salvations that we see here in Luke 16. And in these three conversions, we actually we get this great overview of what salvation is. Different stories highlight different aspects of salvation. So let's look at six things we see in these three stories about the nature of salvation. The first thing we see is that one must trust, not just know. Right? We see in the story of the demon-possessed girl, she knows, actually she knows maybe more than anyone else in these stories that's not a Christian, she knows uh, very clearly about God. Right? She follows around Paul and Silas, and because of her oppression, she says this. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So amongst the non-Christians in our story, she knows the most, right? She, she hits it, she nails it right on the head. Yet, she was obviously not saved. One can know the truth about Jesus and yet still not trust in him. One can know facts about reality and not put their faith in Christ. To be saved, we must put our full trust in that truth. We must believe with both our hearts and our minds. Many of us grew up in Minnesota or in the Midwest, right? A place that is, is saturated with kind of Christian, Christianity, churches, church life. And so most of us, if we grew up in the Midwest or especially Minnesota, uh, a lot of, you have a lot of knowledge about God. I mean, maybe it's not even that much, but you still know lots of facts about God. But just like with this slave girl that was oppressed by demons, just because you know this truth, just because you know there was a man named Jesus who did die and did raise from the grave and was God, just because you know that fact doesn't mean that you're saved. So when we say believe, when we say have faith, we're saying more than just say, okay, yep, I agree that that happened, but we have to choose to put our trust in that person. Just like the slave girl was not saved. Just like the demons know the truth about what happened 2,000 years with Jesus of Nazareth if they are not saved. So one must trust in Jesus, not just know about his life in order to be saved. The, sec the second thing that we see is belief related to the first one. Like we talked about earlier, when the jailer, notice what the jailer asks Paul and Silas, he, he says, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't say, what must I believe? What, what, what faith must I have in order to be saved? He says, what must I do to be saved? And notice that the answer wasn't a bunch of, it wasn't a list of rules. The answer to, what must I do to be saved? The answer wasn't circumcision. It wasn't purification laws. It wasn't dietary restrictions. It wasn't the Ten Commandments. It wasn't the Jewish religion. And it also wasn't only, like we saw in number one, it wasn't only agreeing to a few facts about an executed carpenter turned rabbi in the ancient Near East. The answer to the question of what must I do to be saved is to believe. To believe in the Lord Jesus, putting our trust in not what I've done, not in my morality, not in the family I was born into, or the amounts of time I attended synagogue or church, but putting my trust in the risen Lord Jesus that's what brings salvation. 
having faith in his death in our place and his resurrection as a preview of our resurrected bodies that he promises us through our salvation. The third thing we see about the nature of salvation is that it is followed by baptism. Third, over and over and over again, we see in the book of Acts, and also here in Acts 16, two different times, that when people become saved, they naturally want to get baptized. They naturally do two things. They naturally desire to publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ through baptism, and they want to be united with their Savior in his death as they go underwater and in his resurrection as they are raised up out of the water as spiritually raised new creations in Christ. We saw that with the influential, wealthy Lydia and the servants and employees in her household, and we saw it with the jailer and his family members that heard about this Jesus Christ and and what had happened and chose to believe as well. So again, like we said last week, I want to invite you to consider baptism. If if, uh, you are a believer here today but have not been baptized as a believer, I want to invite you to consider getting baptized this summer. We have an outdoor baptism connected with our church birthday party coming up August 11th uh, at Lake Nokomis. So I want to invite you to that. First of all, save the day. It's a party. As a whole church, we go there and we celebrate new spiritual life. We celebrate what God has done uh, here in our church as we watch people get baptized. We also have a picnic and a birthday party afterwards, which is really great. And so again, we want to invite you to be obedient to Christ by publicly declaring your faith, being united to him in your death and your, res- uh, in, yeah, in your symbolic death to your old self and your resurrection as a new creation in Christ. So if you have more questions about baptism, come talk to myself or another leader here um, or, or shoot me an email. We'd love to talk more about baptism with you. Uh, and hopefully it'll work out for you to get baptized in, in uh, just a little over a month. Fourth thing that we see in the, which, uh, that tells us about the nature of salvation is that good fruit naturally comes. Repentance naturally comes. We turn from our former ways to Christ. We turn from worshiping ourselves to worshiping Christ. Often in Christianity, we call our good works, our good deeds that we do, we call them spiritual fruit. Jesus taught in his ministry that he is like a vine, and if we stay connected to him, we are branches that stay connected to the vine, just like that happens with a, a, a real vine or a real grapevine. It naturally will bear fruit. And so just like Jesus taught, we use this metaphor a lot, good fruit or good deeds naturally come out of our salvation. So in these conversions, we see immediately great spiritual fruit. They show generosity and kindness and hospitality and humility and genuine love for others and for people that are very different than them. Notice, too, that their motivations change. Their desires change. No longer are they doing their good deeds these three characters in our story, no longer are they doing their good deeds in order to get a promotion, in order to get acknowledgement and respect from others. No longer are they doing these good deeds in order to get wealth or influence, but rather their good deeds are now coming from pure motives, from a gratefulness to God for what he's done first in their lives. The fifth thing that we see is that uh, people are not only saved into Christ, which they are, they're also saved into God's family. We're not just saved into eternal life and into 
forgiveness of sins and into heaven and into adoption of God's sons and daughters, though we are, we're also saved into a spiritual family, a Christian community. We're now given brothers and sisters in Christ. The sixth thing that we see about the nature of salvation is that we're given a joy and a peace that the world just cannot understand. The jailer and and the rest of the soldiers and the prisoners just cannot understand why these people who have been beaten and unjustly imprisoned would sing for joy and praise uh, God out loud. As Christians, it's not that we don't ever fear or ever have anxieties or worries or doubts. We still do. We definitely do. But we fight against it alongside our spiritual family with the word of God in hand and with the Holy Spirit's help. Christians suffer differently than the world suffers. We don't suffer as those who have no hope. We see Paul and Silas unjustly beaten, bloody, and tortured in the depths of a dark prison. And what's their response? They're singing. They're praying. They're thanking God that they get a chance to to share in Christ's suffering. And when they finally get a chance to escape, they don't. They don't. And we see this all the time in the New Testament. If this were to happen today, we'd probably see something like this. We'd see Paul and Silas taking a selfie, sharing to the world, look what we get to do, church. Look what we get to do, brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to suffer for the sake of Christ. Yeah, we are going through great suffering and injustice, but we're doing so for Christ. In our salvation, Christians have a hope that cannot be shaken. And we might not be perfect in this, but this is our reality. In our, in our salvation, we have a hope that cannot be shaken for three reasons. One, our God is powerful and sovereign and good. Paul and Silas know God brought them to Philippi for a reason. God, or they know that God is in control, that God could have stopped these lies against them. And we know that And they trust God because they know that God does eventually break open these cells and and their shackles off their hands. And he opens the doors for them. Yet they choose to stay because they know that their God is powerful and sovereign, that he wants them there for a reason. Christians also have a hope that cannot be shaken also because our goal is not the absence of suffering, at least not in this life, but rather to become more like Christ the goal of a Christian is Christ-likeness and to become more deeply connected with our God. And those two things almost always come through suffering. They, come, they can come through flourishing and joy and happiness and thriving, yet they almost always also come through suffering. Salvation actually comes through Paul and, Barnabas, or Paul and Silas's suffering. The Philippian jailer becomes a Christian and his family as well because Paul and Silas go through suffering, as well as we know their sanctification is happening as well, that they are becoming more and more like Christ. They're trusting more and more in God's love and God's plan through this event of unjust suffering in the prison. And finally, Christians, we don't freak out. We don't uh, lose our hope amidst suffering because this world is not the end. So even if we don't receive justice in this life, the slave girl probably didn't receive justice in in what her owners did to her. The many, many 
horrible evils that they did to her. She probably didn't receive justice in this life. Paul and Silas, as we read at the end of their story, they didn't receive justice, right? The, the, the police kind of come and said, oh, didn't realize that you were uh, Roman citizens. You should kind of just leave. Get out of here so, you know, we don't get embarrassed or we don't get in trouble for what we did. So even if we don't receive justice in this life, or even if disease and pain end our lives, even if our earthly relationships disappoint us, even if in this life it's full of pain and suffering, like Jesus' life was, we've been gifted and promised an eternal physical life and a restored and perfected creation. In Christ, we have a salvation and have a hope that cannot be shaken, even by pain and suffering and injustice. So now let's go back to the question of why. Why did Luke choose these three stories? If maybe dozens and dozens or maybe even hundreds of people come to Christ in Philippi, why does he choose these three stories? Why does he highlight these three case studies of different people being confronted and delivered by the gospel? The reason he does that is to show that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone. The reality is, is that the gospel is not just for Jewish people in the ancient Near East that, that followed the Torah really well, but rather the gospel is now for everyone. We've seen this all throughout Acts, and now as it goes even farther from Jerusalem, farther from the center of Judaism, now into a new continent, into a Roman city that has only a handful of people that kind of are Jewish, or like Jewish, or God-fears. Luke wants us to see that the gospel is now for everyone. And that's true. The reality is, both Tim Keller and, and Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, these two authors, talk about how Christianity is the only major religion in the world that throughout history is not uh, mainly ge- geographically or ethnically based. The majority of religions in this world stick to uh, a certain part of the world or a certain ethnicity. Obviously, with some exceptions, but in general, that is the case. The majority of uh, of people from a particular religion, particular religion, are from one people group, one ethnicity, in one particular part of the world. Rebecca uh, McLaughlin she writes about this. She says most of the world's Christians are neither white nor Western, and Christianity is getting less less white and less Western by the day. So even though we might think Christianity is a very European or American religion or a very white religion, the reality is is that most of the world's Christians are, are not in the global west. They're in the global south. They're in China. They're all throughout Africa. They're in Latin America. And they're in India and throughout the rest of the world. So even though our experience for most of us is probably Christianity looks very white and very American or very western, the reality is Christianity is, in, is, is across the world in all different kinds of ethnicities and countries. So Christianity is the most inclusive religion in some ways. In some ways, Christianity is more inclusive than any other religion in the world because it doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter your nationality, your race, your education. Christianity, to, to join Christianity, to become a Christian, it doesn't matter what your morality is, it doesn't matter what wealth that you have, or your achievements. All, literally all, are welcomed into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And that's what Luke is trying to show us here today through these three case studies. He's trying to help us see this point. As the gospel spreads across not just regions, but now across continents, we're seeing who the gospel is for. Not just for good Jewish people who are looking for the Messiah, but the gospel is for all kinds of people, the wealthy and the poor, the slave and the free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, oppressed and free, religious and pagan, men and women, Roman citizens and barbarians, adults and children, Asians, Europeans and Africans, the educated and the uneducated, the influential and the forgotten, the moral and the immoral, the successful and the losers, the wealthy businesswomen, the demon-oppressed slaves, and the blue-collar Roman jailer. The gospel is for everyone. And that is what Luke is trying to tell us here today. Notice, who are our heroes? Quote-unquote heroes here in our story today. Are they faithful Jewish people? No. Are they the children of Israel who've been in covenant with God for centuries? No. Not at all. And Luke is showing us this intentionally. Look at the three who are saved in our passage today. We look at this chart here that kind of describes the vast diversity of these three people. We see that Lydia, she's ethnically Asian. She's uh, uh, economically, she's very wealthy. Spiritually, she's a God-fearer, so she was kind of worshiping the God of the Old Testament, yet still was far away. So she was spiritual, yet didn't know Jesus. And what, what was the way that she was saved? It was through a sermon. It was through public exposition. It was through Paul saying, this God that you're worshiping, that's uh, revealed to you in the Old Testament, that you're kind of following, let me tell you about his son, Jesus Christ, and the fulfillment that Jesus is of, of everything that you've been reading about and believing, the God that you're praying to. And then the next character, we meet the slave girl. Ethnically, she is a native Greek. She's incredibly poor economically and oppressed, we said, both uh, economically, uh, being a slave, as well as she's spiritually oppressed as well by a demon. And her salvation, she was saved by the name of Jesus uh, through an exorcism, by this, these demonic, uh, oppressive spirits leaving her. And then finally, the third conversion that we see is uh, a Roman jailer, right, who's a blue-collar worker. He's not wealthy, nor is he super poor. And how is he spiritually? Well, he's kind of just indifferent. And his salvation event was he saw miracles happen, stuff that he couldn't explain. And not only that, he saw examples. He saw these people lying in a cell, beaten and bloody, yet joyful. And he had no category for that. And he put his trust in this God that they were speaking about. So the gospel is for everyone. That's what Luke is trying to show us here today. And on a graph, it kind of helps you understand what's going on here. We see that both the poor and the rich Welcome to Christ. We see both the, the spiritual and the unspiritual, or the moral and the immoral, are welcomed to Jesus through the gospel. And if you're wondering that bottom right category, the gospel, Paul also brings the gospel to those type of people as well. We're going to see that he speaks to wealthy people. He speaks to kings and to rulers who are rich and not too spiritual as well. And so we see that the gospel is for everyone. That's what Paul... Uh, but Paul, as well as Luke, is trying to show us here. It's for everyone, not just white Americans. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, she says, So if you care about diversity, don't dismiss Christianity. It is the most diverse, multicultural, or multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of history. The gospel's for everyone. 
And Christianity is also the most exclusive religion in the world. So even though in some ways Christianity is the most inclusive faith, it is also at the same time the most exclusive faith. There is only one way to be saved. There's only one way to heaven, only one way to have your sins forgiven, only one way to be reconciled to your creator. Only one way, and that is through faith in Jesus. Luke puts this exclusivity right alongside the stories of unbelievable inclusivity. Right? The Jewish people, uh, Paul, Silas, uh, not Timothy, yeah, maybe Luke, I forget if he's Jewish or not, they would have seen what's happening and their minds would have been blown. The gospel is going to non-Jewish people, to slaves and to Gentiles. What is going on here? And right next to that, Luke also puts these statements that talk about the exclusivity of Christianity. There's only one way for salvation. We saw back in 17, the slave girl follows Paul and Silas and says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaims to you the way of salvation, the singular way of salvation. It's for everyone, but there's only one way through Jesus Christ. Not everyone gets saved. There is a way to salvation. And Jesus taught that throughout his ministry. In Matthew, Jesus said, the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, or enter by it, are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There is a singular way of salvation. And it is hard, and few find it. Jesus again talks about this singular way of salvation. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only do we see that in verse 13 in our passage today, but later in verse 31, when the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? They answer him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The way that someone is saved is not through church attendance. It's not through being moral. It's not by following the law. Salvation does not come through being wealthy. It doesn't come from being a respected member of your community. It does not come through being completely independent. It does not come by being an honorable citizen. Salvation comes through belief. Belief in the Lord Jesus. The gospel is for everyone, the rich and the poor, the spiritual and the unspiritual, that it only comes through Jesus Christ, through faith and trust in him. A great litmus test for us to see if we're actually understanding the gospel. And I'm not saying question your salvation, but we should ask ourselves this question. Thinking about someone who's not yet a Christian. Okay, Think about someone who's not a Christian. If we have contempt for that person becoming a Christian, or if we have hopelessness about that person becoming a Christian, we have not really understood grace. We have not really understood the gospel. Because if we have contempt about someone becoming a Christian, it's probably because we think they're scum and we're really great. But if we really understand the gospel, that we are also scum, yet deeply loved, then we won't, then we won't have contempt. Or if we have hopelessness about someone who's not a believer, they would never come to Christ. They hate God so much. They are so far from him. 
If we, if we have hopelessness about someone coming to Christ, we're also not understanding grace or the gospel. Apart from God's grace, apart from Jesus' love for us, we're all, salvation for all of us is hopeless. The gospel of grace is for everyone. And out of that, we see there's no greater unifying force in this world. So if the gospel is for everyone, if churches are made up of a, a hodgepodge of very different, very strange, very peculiar, unique people. Where else in the world do we see those types of people come together? Where else in the world do we see the rich and the poor, the Republicans and the Democrats, the independents, the men and women, young and old, liberals and conservatives, urban and suburban and rural, all ethnicities, all nationalities, all genders, all backgrounds, all life stages, all relationship statuses come together and be unified? Where else do we see that in the world? Our world loves diversity, but where else do we see this type of diversity happen? And of course, Hiawatha Church is not perfect in this. No church is perfect in this. But there's no greater unifying force in the world than the gospel. There's this ancient Jewish prayer that Jewish men would pray nearly every morning. And Paul, kind of the main guy in our story here today, the guy who preached the gospel to all these people who get saved. Paul probably prayed this prayer hundreds of times in his life. This was the ancient Jewish prayer. Oh Lord God, I thank thee that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Luke is showing us the nature of the gospel. Paul would have prayed this prayer hundreds of times in his life Yet who are the first few converts in his church? Who are the heroes of this story? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Human, in human nature, we want to identify with a group and be protective and loyal to that group and hate anyone who is different. But when our identity is in Christ, these walls fall down. We now identify with new people. They are like us, sinners who are far from God, but are now saved in faith through Jesus Christ. The gospel is for everyone. And Paul's realizing this as God is, as God is confronting him with his, his uh, past, praying this prayer. God is showing the Jewish people and showing the church that his gospel is now for everyone, for women, for slaves, for Gentiles, for everyone. And it is now through the unifying force of the gospel, that all these people are now brothers and sisters. They now care for each other. They now love each other. They're now committed to each other in a local church, which is crazy. It's, it's, it's incredible to see, even in our context as well, and especially in a first century context like this. And this is what Luke is trying to show us. Let us end with this quote from Tim Keller speaking about how the gospel brings salvation to everyone, how it's powerful enough and good enough for everyone. Jesus was powerful enough for the slave girl. He saved her from demonic oppression. Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia. His gospel was attractive to her who was a seeker. And Jesus was uh, practical enough for the jailer who wanted to live an honorable life, a life of meaning. And when he saw what happened in the jail, he saw that Jesus brought meaning. Jesus is whatever you need. 
Jesus says, whatever you need. Jesus will bring salvation to you, whatever your greatest needs are, whether you need power, whether you need uh, deliverance, whether you need beauty, whether you need meaning, all of those can and will come through Jesus. And we see this in these three people's story as well. But he'll also challenge you. He'll tell you that there is only one way to salvation. It's through repentance and belief in him. That's the only way to salvation. Universalism is not true. So Jesus will challenge you. And at the same time, he'll also be whatever you need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great, great news that we see play out in story form and that we also see uh, spoken to us clearly. Salvation comes through belief and trust in your son's death in our place. And we see it played out. We, we cannot deny, we cannot overlook that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone, everyone here in this room is loved by you and you, you want to adopt them. You want to save them. You want to forgive their sins. So Jesus, we pray that that good news, both through, through story and explicit proclamation, would be good news to us, would be a new identity or remind us of our identity of who we are already in you. We thank you for the good news in Acts 16. In your name, amen.